You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. And yes, we are live. We are always the show of ideas, never once the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. I have to apologize in advance for my show. I am going to have such a good time on, with this topic. Uh, it is a topic we have covered before, more about that in a moment. But this is perhaps my favorite series of shows over the entire 700 shows, more or less, that I have done. So if I actually giggle during the show, please bear with me. I am just having the time of my life. Some time ago, the National Constitution Center, uh, a nonprofit organization funded by Congress, but totally nonprofit, um, located in Philadelphia, sponsored the most wonderful dare I say, competition. It invited three teams of scholars, legal scholars, constitutional law scholars, to uh, one team was libertarian, one was progressive, and one was conservative. And they were asked to rewrite the Constitution in the manner that they saw fit uh, with respect to their ideology. Uh, the result was three fascinating, uh, different in many ways, but surprisingly similar in many other ways. Three separate drafts of the Constitution. You may recall that in prior shows, I interviewed a team member from the Libertarian Constitution drafting and from the Progressive, and now is uh, the final interview, hopefully not forever, but with the Conservative, a team member on the Conservative team to explain what a conservative constitution uh, as opposed to the existing constitution, perhaps as opposed, is it appropriate? We'll find out. But what a constitutional uh, oriented, uh, what a conservatively oriented constitution might look like. With that introduction, I'm delighted to welcome to the show and introduce to you my listeners, um, Ilan Werman. Ilan is, is an associate professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He teaches admin law and constitutional law. He has written extensively in the Yale Law Journal, as well as other most other leading law journals in the country. And he has authored two books, A Dead Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism, and he has written The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. Uh, Elon has worked, has been, was a team member on the con conservative team, and he's here to explain what a conservatively oriented constitution might look like and how it would be different. Elon, welcome to the show this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to talk about this. Now, I'm gonna, uh, this is going to be, warning to the audience, a very deep, uh, deep dive into constitutional theory. So just to set the right tone for the show, uh, uh, Elon, I'm going to ask you as my first question, what did you do about the post office? Uh, <laughs> we kept the post office in there. It is still in oh, Article no, 1, no. Section 8 uh, of the Constitution, though we uh, have it in Article 1, Section 11 uh, of our Constitution because we, um, re, you know, we reorganized it and we interpolated the Bill of Rights and put it where they belong uh, in the appropriate sections. Uh, and so, but in Article One, Section Eleven, I've, unless I'm unless I'm not remembering uh, correctly, we have uh, the post office, uh, and that means yes, you can carry the mail along the post roads if you can establish them uh, pursuant to the necessary and proper clause. Uh, I know the post office is a, a favorite of strict constructionists or, or libertarians, but yep, it's a, it's in there. All three teams kept 
the post office. And so I start off on a very low note. This was your shot and you blew it. Okay. We've and gotten by, that out of the way. way. We, and by the way, we did, we did amend the language more than the other teams. We said Congress shall have power to establish a system for the prompt and efficient delivery of the mail. That doesn't necessarily mean there must be a monopoly on the delivery of mail and so on. I think Congress can establish presumably a system of private contractors and so on. But uh, so, you know, we, we, we tweaked it a little bit, but yes, it is there. And to that, to your comment, your change, I would say in a non-sectarian way, from your mouth to God's ears. But okay, now let's go on to matters perhaps of greater import. Now, I'd like to um, get the audience organized to your way of thinking and to know what your goals were. So could you please summarize really briefly, because you have a lot of content to do, but uh, you had to have started consciously or subconsciously, with certain founding principles. The founders sure did, and you must have. So what were the principles that drove your drafting, and to what extent do you think they were different from the principles that were consciously or subconsciously in the minds of the founders when they spent that hot summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. Sure, and I'll try to be brief. I've promised such things before, and usually I don't actually keep the promise, but I'll do my best, and feel free to cut me off. Uh, What I think is the best way to answer this question is to actually compare it to how the progressives approached their constitution and the libertarians approached uh, theirs. So the libertarian constitution, I I assume you had Ilya Shapiro uh, on your show when we've talked about their constitution. Actually, I had Tim Sandefur. Oh, yeah, Tim Sandifer. Uh, my apologies. That's right. Um, well, when, uh, when I've, I've spoken mostly to Ilya in various public fora about this, and it's in their document as well, but they like to say, look, we mostly started with the Constitution that we have, and after every clause, we just say, and we mean it, and we really mean it as though the Founders' Constitution is a libertarian constitution. Uh, but with all due respect, it's just ain't so. It just ain't so. The Founders' Constitution was not libertarian in the sense. Yes, of course the Founders' Constitution protected liberty, but they also sought to enable self-government for the common good. Yes, it's true that the national government was a, a government of limited and enumerated power, and in that respect, maybe we had a libertarian-ish national government, but certainly under the original Constitution, the states could legislate over all avenues of life, public uh, welfare, health, safety, morals legislation, all of these things, at least morals legislation, that libertarians tend to not like. The states, for a long time, and largely still to this day, are allowed to exercise legislative power over such matters. Uh, The progressives, for their part, they focused on democratic accountability, and equality. Well, what did the conservatives do? What were, what were our animating principles? Well, we think that a constitution for a free society like ours, for a self-governing but liberal in the classically liberal sense, right, society like ours, must balance self-government and liberty. Uh, and that was sort of our, our, our motivating principle. How do we achieve a balance of self-government and liberty, because these two objectives are in our intention, right? I mean, it, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to, to, to know that it's often self-governing majorities that infringe on rights of minorities. And certainly, I don't need to explain that to a libertarian audience. And so it's really quite difficult, actually, to craft a successful constitution that successfully balances these two uh, competing uh, objectives that are intention. So, so those are the animating principles, and I think they were the founders' principles. By the way, I don't think the founders were libertarian. They cared about liberty. Of course they did. They cared even more about ordered liberty, but they also cared about self-government and legislating for the common good. So in our Constitution, you'll see all of these themes. You'll see democratic accountability, equality, liberty, self-government, and how do we balance uh, those principles. That was decently short for my first answer. No, it was perfect. And our audience will decide uh, after the um, as a result of our conversation, how true you were. I think you were how true you were to those principles. Um, And hopefully they'll be able to form their own opinion uh, at the end of the show. Now, um, in in doing drafting, obviously, you made many uh, 
not as many as one might have imagined, but that's also true of the libertarian uh, draft of the Constitution. Uh, did in doing a revision, did you see yourself as correcting mistakes that the founders made? If they did make mistakes, were they mistakes? in their inability to see into the future? Did they violate their own principles? Um, what caused, to the extent that you differed from the draft of the founders, what, what was the source of those differences? That's a great question, uh, and it's a bit challenging to answer. And I think what I would say is we think that the founding generation was largely right about the principles that they sought to enact in their constitution, this balance between self-government and liberty. Uh, but as I'm sure you and your audience know, the anti-federalists had a critique of the founders, of the federalists at the time. And, you know, the, 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 the federalists, the framers, were, were not... Uh, they were certainly attuned to the criticisms of the anti-federalists. The anti-federalists thought that the judiciary will slowly accrete power to itself through precedence and judicial review. And, of course, you know, Alexander Hamilton had responded, well, they just have the, the power of judgment, right, not will or force. They don't have the power of the purse or the sword. But, uh, and obviously the anti-federalists in some respects were prescient about this. Uh, and the Supreme Court has an outsized role in modern American politics, but the same with the executive. The anti-federalists feared the executive, and the. Um, in, in my view, I, I'm, I'm an executive power scholar in part. Um, you, if you actually look at the way that the founders wrote the Constitution, they took a lot of the royal prerogative, they took a list of, of the royal prerogative powers that were exercised by the king. This was the list in, in Blackstone, and they assigned most of the royal prerogative powers to Congress. This is actually something that most audiences don't know. Everyone thinks that the enumeration of power in Article 1, Section 8 was intended to limit the National Congress's power, and, and that's what it, in fact, does. But they probably enumerated power because that was the only way to assign the historically royal prerogative powers over war and peace, over commerce, over immigration, and you know, raising troops, regulating troops to Congress. And so Congress was supposed to have a lot more say in foreign affairs uh, than the modern imperial presidency has. And so the anti-federalists were sort of prescient about modern, the risk of uh, an imperial presidency, and of course the risk of Congress aggrandizing power to itself vis-a-vis -vis the states. So it turns out that the anti-federalists were quite prescient about all of these. I think for their time, the framers were obviously correct to think that the Constitution they wrote was an improvement upon what had come before. But our objective was to take the framers' principles, self-government, liberty, separation of powers, federalism, and sort of try to provide a corrective. Yes, the anti-federalists turned out to be right. It took 150 years for them to start becoming right, 200 years for them to become right, um, mostly because of our feelings as a people and you know, always letting politics and political ends trump constitutional principles. Uh, and we tried to amend this Constitution to sort of restructure it, rejigger it, rebalance it, uh, to be a bit more faithful to what the framers had hoped uh, over time uh, uh, would be sort of the balance among the branches in the states. And, and that was sort of our objective. You can include me in the list of people who didn't know until one second ago um, the approach the founders took in listing the enumerated powers. So thank you so much for that. I just became already smarter than I was 10 well, minutes can, can ago. Say, uh, can yes. I say one more thing about that? Then? Of course. Just, of course. Just so, just so, there's, uh, just so we, I, I want to hammer that point home. The Constitutional Convention rejected a resolution to enumerate power. It's called Resolution 6. They rejected a resolution to enumerate power in favor of a resolution to give Congress all legislative powers over matters over which the separate states were independent or separately incompetent. It was, it was about the language. And then the Committee of Detail went ahead and enumerated the power anyway. They completely ignored the convention's instructions. And the only explanation, and I'm not the first to come up with this, uh, 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 William Krosky in the Chicago, I think he was a Chicago professor in the 1930s, first came up with this. If you look at the enumeration in Article 1, Section 8, over half the powers are directly taken from William Blackstone's chapter on the royal prerogatives. Uh, and so it is, it is kind of a myth about how we have an enumeration of power. Now, don't get me wrong. The fact that we have an enumeration of power does, in fact, 
and in effect limit the national government's power, and I think that's a good thing. But it's kind of interesting, the origins of it. Okay, and that was the last thing I wanted to say. And I would just say that one of the, one of the quote, mistakes, how dare I even use that word, one of the mistakes that in enumerating powers, it turns out, in hindsight, of course, that they, they limited Congress's powers to everything. Uh, so yes, it limits it, but it turns out it's a limitation without a limitation because the powers have become complements of the Supreme Court and perhaps some wording, but let's say the Supreme Court, the limitation of powers says you are limited to everything. So I, but let's not get bogged down in that. That's my own beef. Now, um, an important word when you uh, have summarized uh, your work product, when you were explaining to readers um, the uh, what the driving uh, forces in your work product, you spent um, so you paid some attention to the issue of small d. Dem I guess it always has a small d. Democracy. Um, and um, it comes up a lot. We'll discuss it in your restructuring of the uh, structure of the Senate. It comes up in your discussion on how to elect a president. Um, and now, tell us about uh, the relationship of democracy uh, in theory to your approach and how it differs from how the founders looked at and used small d democracy. And before you do that, explain to the audience what you mean when you say democracy, only because it is a word that has become so general, so it kind of loses its meaning. So I just want the audience to know when you use that word democracy, uh, how do you use it? So uh, certainly in the context of this conversation, to my mind, democracy is the idea that the people decide decide who rules over them. Uh, this uh, can also be, uh, you know, uh, there are all sorts of, uh, on a continuing basis, I guess I should say, the people could always elect a monarch, and you have an elective monarchy, those aren't totally unknown right to history, uh, but they, they choose the people who make the rules for them on an ongoing basis through elections. Uh, now, uh, what I think is important to understand is I don't think that the founders believed that democracy was an end in and of itself. And I'm not sure that I believe democracy is an end in and of itself. I'm sort of the, a Churchillian in this regard. It's the best form of government. It's the worst form of government, except for all the other ones tried. I think at the end of the day, the question is, how do we create a regime in which human beings can exist and flourish as human beings, sort of consistent with uh, their functions uh, as human beings? So you can see there's sort of this natural law, natural right sort of background to my view on it. And it turns out that if you look at the course of human histories, democracies overall are better at creating these regimes where people can be free and can flourish. Uh, certainly, um, they have a, a slightly better track record than non-democratic regimes, but they don't have a, a, great, a, you know, a perfect track record. Uh, and that's why you have to also check democracy. Or, as, as Madison said, or Publius said in Federalist 10, we want to create a popular government, a Republican government, but that remedies the diseases most incident to popular government. How do you create a democracy, which is most likely to make good laws and good rules because the majority doesn't want to tyrannize itself, while recognizing that there's always a risk of a majority tyrannizing a minority, and therefore we need to enshrine some amount of fundamental liberties in a Bill of Rights, for example, and we need to have a separation of powers and checks and balances is what we often uh, call it, uh, so that ambition must be made to counteract ambition. I think all of that is actually quite consistent with what we did. It's consistent with the Founders' Constitution. What we, what we focused on, um, when you said small d democracy, I thought you were going to say, you know, small d deliberation, or maybe that's the big D of our, um, you know, uh, word of our uh, Constitution, because we focus a lot of, uh, on democratic deliberation. And the idea here is, in our Constitution, we eschewed 
putting into the Constitution substantively politically conservative ends. We don't talk about gay marriage. We don't talk about abortion. There was some debate about this. Why don't we talk about that? Because we think a Constitution should sort of set the structure in terms of deliberation for the common good. So, for example, and maybe we'll get into this, one uh, example uh, is the Senate. Our Senate, we doubled down on the anti-democratic quality of the United States Senate. We made the Senate smaller. We give one senator per state. So our United States Senate is 50 senators. We give them a single nine-year term, so they're not up for re-election. And they have to take an oath to legislate for the common good. Now, we almost made their deliberation secret, uh, but that was too far uh, for some on our committee in our mini-convention. And so we, we didn't end up making the deliberation secret. But what's the point? of having a Senate with this structure. It's this idea that it's not anti-democratic. I mean, it, it's partially anti-democratic, but it's, again, it's resolving the problems of democracy while still being a popular government. The people choose these representatives, they choose these senators, but then the senators have to deliberate and legislate for the common good and you know, avoid rent-seeking, avoid partiality, avoid partial interests. Uh, and that's uh, what we think is you know, saving democracy from itself and for itself, if you will. And so a big theme of ours was this democratic deliberation. I love the idea of the Senate. I really did. Uh, I was, I was interested when you mentioned uh, and in your writings, you mentioned that uh, you considered having the deliberations private, uh, secret, not private, but secret. And I said to myself, why would that be so contentious? Since the senators only ran for one term, even if they were public, and the senators took positions that angered the electorate, there's nothing the electorate could do about it anyway. So how is the electorate benefited other than by learning from the debate? How could they do anything about a senator who has let them down in their own minds? So I well, you, once you-, you took once, you oh, took sorry, the words out of my mouth in our, in our debates. Uh, let's put it that way. I, I just think it was an optics problem. It seemed too sinister, too oligarchic. But your point is well taken. Like, we already had an aristocratic Senate that we made, and if they're not eligible for election, why not have them secret? By the way, the un actual United States Senate, the one we have, deliberated in secret for six years, for its first six years. Uh, and then they opened it up uh, uh, to the public. But there's actually a precedent in American history for this. What caught my attention, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, I just want to mention it, you had the senators taking what I will call, although the words are charged, a loyalty oath. Um, now, loyalty oath has an ugly history. It's, it harkens back to the McCarthy era. You, you're too young to even know about the McCarthy era. Um, but, um, so, but it is an oath. And uh, tell us about the oath and when you just explain what it was, because I have one question on the oath. But please just tell the audience what the oath, what they swear to do in the oath that you would impose upon senators. Yeah, so the, 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 I'll say one thing before that, which is we also require the senators and members of the House to be physically present when the House is in session, when their respective houses are in session, unless good cause excuses them. This is actually taken from the Pennsylvania uh, Constitution, which requires members to be there. So you're not going to just have senators and members of Congress talking to C-SPAN cameras. You actually have to be physically present on the floor when the House is in session and dealing with, with business. But when they're dealing with business, we also say that each senator shall pledge by oath or affirmation to promote the common good and long-term welfare of the nation and not the interests of any party or class. So we're not saying, you know, I mean, obviously we would assume that they would be loyal to the United States, but what we're trying to get them to do is to pledge, right, to pledge on oath or affirmation that they will do the, the best uh, of their knowledge, uh, to the best of their ability, uh, actions that promote the common good and not sort of sectarian interests. Note that we don't say that they can't promote the interests of their state. 
we actually reintroduce the direct, um, indirect election of senators through the state legislatures. Now, the theory being, if you're protective of state prerogatives and this division between national and state power, arguably that you know advances the long-term welfare of the nation and the common good because you know uh, the national government should only have power over general matters, things that affect general welfare, common defense, and things like that that the separate states are you know incompetent uh, to legislate over. And we think that's sensible. Our, you know, we have no illusions that the senators are still going to find ways uh, to um, engage in rent-seeking and um, to bully people into giving campaign finance contributions uh, in order to uh, enact favorable legislation. I mean, we have no illusion of that, but we hope that this uh, puts a thumb on the scale and at least nudges their, them or at least their consciences uh, to truly try to deliberate for the common good as opposed to uh, uh, any particular uh, faction. I mean, this is, this is you know, Madison in Federalist 10, recognized the problem of faction, as you know, and he thought he solved it by the extended republic, where there would be too many uh, factions to actuate the impulses of a, ma- of, of a majority, uh, whereas in a small republic or a small nation-state, it's very easy for factional, passionate ma- uh, minorities to, to get control of power. But he might have been wrong about that. I mean, we now have public choice theory. The libertarians love public choice theory. Uh, it's one, of, one of the insights of public choice theory uh, and, and the literature surrounding it is that it turns out factions are still good at getting their palace policies enacted. Why? Because factions are intensely interested in one particular issue that the rest of the general public is only diffusely interested in it. So a legislator is going to take money from the faction who's intensely interested in this one issue and will vote their way on this uh, one issue. And we need a solution for that. I don't know that we have a solution for that in our Constitution. Uh, But we think, again, deliberating in secret might have helped, by the way, in this regard. But again, making a small Senate, making it you can't go for re-election, pledging pledging to legislate for the common good, we think puts a thumb on the scale, nudges them, if you will, in the direction uh, of avoiding the public choice problem and truly uh, legislating for the general good. When you answered my question about loyalty, you accused me of reading your mind or using your words. You just used mine because I was was trying to tease out I was trying to tease out the loyalty oath answer so I could say what about loyalty to states? And there you were, you responded before I got to ask the question. Now, the harder question is, in your, if not oath, but in your perception of to who does the loyalty lie, um, I have often wondered, um, looking at bare, at, at duty, when a senator today goes to Washington, Um, And he certainly owes a duty to the country, for sure, to defend the Constitution, etc. But he also owes a duty to the state. And my theoretical question was, we don't have to get sidetracked, but the question was, assuming a conflict between a bill like uh, building a ship uh, in in Biloxi, Mississippi, that the Defense Department doesn't need, but it sure benefits the state, whether the senator's duty, forgetting about anything else, whether the duty is to the state and have the money spent building the ship, or whether the duty is to the federal government and don't vote for that because although it's good for the state, it's bad for the country. So uh, I don't know that you have answered the question, but we would be sidetracked, uh, although having a good time, if we discuss that. It is a good question to which I do not know that I have a great answer. Uh, in that regard. Um, so, uh, it, yes, it's, it's an excellent question. Now, um, tell uh, what was interesting in looking at the result of the work product of the three teams is how much you agreed on an issue which has been, of course, in current conversation a lot, which is the operation of the uh, federal judiciary in general and emphasizing the Supreme Court specifically. So what was your beef with current structure and how did you go about fixing it? Uh, You can restrict your answer to the Supreme Court or you can broaden it to include the federal judiciary, which I think is a subsidiary issue. I think uh, I need to talk about 
both, and also executive officers. You'll see what I, ha- what I have in mind, because we, if you reform the appointment process, we, you also need to reform the confirmation process. And, I, and I'll say a little bit more about that. But, but the thought here, again, is this a problem of lifetime tenure, quote-unquote problem of lifetime tenure uh, on Supreme Court justices. A lot of them live much longer than people lived uh, in the founding generation. They're nominated in their 30s uh, or, or, or 40s, I guess, is, is more accurate for Supreme Court uh, justices. And they can stay there for 40, 50 years. And there is something... Uh, I don't want to say undemocratic about it. There's supposed to be something undemocratic, right, or anti-democratic, counter-majoritarian about a Supreme Court enforcing the higher law of the Constitution, right, the restraints that we the people have put on ourselves. So I don't want to use sort of that trope against it. But the reality is, um, you know, um, uh, 45 years is a long time for, for five people uh, to get to decide important social, political, controversial issues in the country. Now, of course, the one way to so there there must be a way to lower the temperature in these Supreme Court confirmation battles. Now, look, one way to lower the temperature is to say um, the Supreme the Constitution doesn't say much about these things. Maybe you know the Supreme Court doesn't say much about uh, the Constitution doesn't say much about abortion, but maybe it doesn't say anything that much about affirmative action either. Maybe both of these are issues that should be left to the states or to the people and at the states or at the national level. But the problem is, of course, is a lot of people believe that the Constitution uh, leaves matters to the states where they think they can win politically, and that it doesn't leave matters uh, to the states um, where it, you know it they would rather nationalize their preferred political preference. I think this is true of conservatives uh, and uh, uh, progressives uh, and libertarians. I think it's true sort of of everybody. For what it's worth, I happen to think that the correct originalist answer to most constitutional questions, certainly the hot-button ones, is that it leaves many of these questions to the democratic process uh, in the states. Now, I think that would lower the temperature of Supreme Court battles and confirmation battles, but, you know, it's also controversial because, you know, look at Roe v. Wade. Uh, even if Roe v. Wade's overturned, it would leave the matter to the states, abortion to the states, and that's still controversial. Uh, and so simply leaving matters to the democratic process apparently is not sufficient. So look, a lot of people think 35 years, 40 years, it's way too much time to be a Supreme Court justice, to have that kind of power. 18-year, fix the Supreme Court at at nine justices. Currently, it's not fixed at anything. Uh, So the Congress can expand or contract uh, the size of the Supreme Court. So have nine justices, have each term be 18 years, stagger the term, so every president, every term, I should say, there are two um, seats to fill. Uh, and we think this will lower the temperature of the confirmation battles a bit. It won't entirely because, you know, you're still going to fight over who's going to be elected president for that third term, you know, Republican or Democrat, because we are always going to have two more seats. And in some respects, maybe this just makes uh, that politically controversial in more elections uh, because you can expect them every two years. Uh, but the idea is, uh, the, the hope is, that it reduces the stakes because there's constant turnover in the Supreme Court. And quite frankly, 18 years is enough. It's, it's not a perfect solution. And as I said, we have to reform the confirmation process as well, which I'm happy to talk about. But, but all three teams sort of uh, came to some agreement about 18-year term limits. Well, actually, the progressives and the conservatives came to agreement, um, and you mentioned Ilya Shapiro. Ilya has mentioned that although the, the libertarian constitution took no formal position, he would they would support uh, an 18-year term limit. What I wondered about, and I love, I love not that it matters what I think, but I have it's my show. I can say what I think. Um, I, I happen to like the idea of an 18-year term limit. The only thing I wondered about uh, is uh, that why couldn't a a Supreme Court justice who was being termed out, uh, why couldn't that justice be renominated? Let's assume, let's take Scalia, just because I I love saying his name, uh, uh, Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, in my hypothetical, is about to be termed out. And the existing president really admires Scalia and his judicial point of view. So now uh, Scalia has to go. The existing president at the time would simply look for the most Scalia-like substitute because he can't have Scalia. That's kind of silly. 
let him just reappoint Scalia and go through the process again. Um, just a I, minor I that's, tweak. That's fair. That's, 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 that's fair criticism. And, uh, but I guess the idea is we don't necessarily want, um, you know, one president uh, through happenstance and luck uh, due to deaths or, and or times resignations to have three or four appointments in one term and others to have none. I mean, that, that makes people feel that the stakes are much higher. Um, than if every presidential term there are two and no more than two. And if you win the election and the two you put on there are like Justice Scalia, so be it. Uh, but then you have to win the next election if you want the next two seats. That's, that's sort of the idea, but, but your point is, is very much well taken. What caught my attention is, especially, of course, in the libertarian constitution, is the protection or the degree of protection of what all the teams referred to one way or the other as fundamental rights, the rights enshrined uh, as enumerated in the Bill of Rights and captured uh, and other rights captured by the Ninth Amendment. Um, Tell us uh, your approach to fundamental rights. And what caught my attention is you mentioned, that is, you went out of your way to mention in some of your writings, the issue of conscription, which caught my attention. And also what caught my attention is a passing reference to national criminal laws, an issue that really gets my dander up. So tell us about fundamental rights in general, how your approach differed from the other two teams, what your worldview is. And if you could mention along the way, uh, just because I am curious about it, your view on conscription. Okay, well, you got me talking about fundamental rights, and so I, I have to start with my actual view of what our Constitution, the one we actually have, does and doesn't do, or was and wasn't supposed to do with respect to fundamental rights, and then I'll, I'll dovetail into what we do in this conservative Constitution. So the original Constitution right, creates this federal structure where the Bill of Rights limits the scope of the national government's power but doesn't apply to the state government's power. Uh, and the states all had their own Bill of Rights, Bills of Rights, most of which had similar or parallel constitutional provisions. So, for example, I think every single state as of 1868 had a First Amendment equivalent. Uh, almost all of them had a Second Amendment equivalent, but, but uh, even those that didn't, of course, pre-guaranteed the right, at least of white persons, to, to, uh, uh, to own guns. Well, after the adoption of the 14th Amendment, especially in the 20th century, the Supreme Court uh, has done two things. One, it has incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states, which now means that the Federal Bill of Rights, as interpreted by the National Supreme Court, applies everywhere in all 50 states, even if the Supreme Court gets certain interpretations wrong or if there are certain rights in there that we don't like. So, for example, uh, this means California uh, can't experiment with prohibiting handguns because the Second Amendment now, apply, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, applies to California. But this also means that Texas can't um, experiment with abolishing the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule, this idea that you have to, I know libertarians like it, it's the idea that you have to suppress evidence unlawfully obtained by an illegal search. That's not commanded by the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, of the Fourth Amendment. It's actually quite made up. And so the point is, you know, there are things that conservatives can experiment with, there are rights that libertarians can experiment, um, uh, libertarians, sure, and there are rights that, that progressive states can experiment with, uh, but we can't do that now because of the incorporation of the Bill of Rights uh, against uh, uh, the states. I'm not saying it's been a bad thing. I think overall it's been a good thing, but there is this cost to it. But in addition to that, uh, the Supreme Court has nationalized unwritten fundamental rights in with this concept called substantive due process. So the due process clause of the 14th Amendment says no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now the text of the due process clause sounds like it allows the government to take away your life, liberty, or property so long as it supplies due process of law. Well, the concept of substantive due process is this idea that the due process clause isn't merely a procedural limitation, the, procedural, the procedures that have to be gone through before the state takes away your life or your liberty, but it's a substantive limitation on the substance of legislation itself. In other words, some rights, even if they're unwritten, are so fundamental that the state cannot interfere with them without exceptional justification. So 
substantive due process is the doctrine uh, whereby the Supreme Court has enforced, you know, rights to use contraception in marriage, the rights to uh, abortion, the right to same-sex marriage and same-sex sodomy, all of which are, you know, maybe perfectly plausible things, certainly things libertarians like, but it's hardly clear that a lot of these things are commanded uh, by the Constitution. And so they do this under this concept of substantive due process. So what do, what do we do? So, oh, so let me back up. In my new book, since you mentioned it, if I may, the Second Founding, an Introduction to the Fourteenth Amendment, I argue both that the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment precludes substantive due process. There's no such thing as substantive due process. This was made up uh, in the 1870s and 80s when the Supreme Court uh, conflated a bunch of antebellum doctrines that loosely kind of looked like substantive due process but were something else. So, so I make that argument. I also argue that incorporation was wrong. In my view, states can experiment with Second Amendment rights, First Amendment rights, uh, Fourth Amendment rights, as long as they don't discriminate. They, can, they must treat their citizens equally. Okay, and that's kind of a fine line, but, but that's sort of my view. Okay, so, uh, and, and the modern doctrine disagrees with me in both, both respects. There's incorporation of the Bill of Rights and there's substantive due process. In our Constitution, we nip substantive due process in the bud. We say, ah, gosh, I wish I had um, thought to look up this language, um, but we say something to the effect uh, in the rights section that the due process clause, you know, shall not be construed by the Supreme Court to empower the national judiciary, um, you know, to impose unwritten rights um, on, on, you know, the nation. I, I wish, I really want to look up the language, but it's, 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 it's somewhere there. So we try to nip substantive due process in, in, the, in the bud. We do, however, explicitly incorporate the Bill of Rights. So we settle this question once and for all. What we do is we take the rights in the Bill of Rights and we say, neither the United States nor shall any state, you know, and then we have a First Amendment equivalent, Second Amendment equivalent, and, and then we vary them a bit. So that's the approach that we took in our Constitution, and I've also given you sort of my view on what I think uh, that our actual Constitution was intended to accomplish and how the Supreme Court has sort of messed it all up. Okay, I've said a lot, and I don't know if I've answered everything, but I'll stop there. Now, what about conscription? Okay. So only, I think only because do... you have taken the trouble um, of all of the rights um, that one thinks one has or hopes one has. Um, uh, you could have discussed any one of a number of rights, but you took the trouble, if you will, of specifically identifying your view on conscription. Conscription, of course, is a lot of syllables, which to most people being the draft, but it might mean public service. There have been smatterings of debate by progressives about conscripting people to go and sell environmentalism and stuff like that. So tell us about your view on when government, and I'll say government intentional to capture perhaps the states and the federal government, when government has the constitutional power to compel citizens to work, I'll use that word, work yeah. for the government. So I'm embarrassed to say that I can't remember the exact language we used. I know that in our introduction we mentioned how we assume that there is a power of conscription and or and that we clarify in the bill of rights type section the rights uh, article uh, that you can have conscientious objections and be exempt from the draft i know we said that i don't know if we've explicitly put in a conscription power i'm not sure i can't remember but it's an interesting question because where does congress get the power to conscript people into service so the argument would have to be the necessary and proper clause, and there's a question as to whether that's a successful argument under the necessary and proper clause, right? So we, we know that Congress can uh, raise uh, and support armies and navies and provide for a navy. That, those are explicit powers, but it doesn't say it can raise armies through conscription. If it can do that, it must be done through the necessary and proper clause, which says, right, Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to effectuate the foregoing powers, or, or to carry into execution the foregoing powers, and any other power, by the way, uh, vested by this Constitution uh, in uh, the United States or any department or officer thereof. Okay, but, but I, the, the, the principal thrust of the necessary and proper clause is Congress can take actions necessary and proper to effectuate its enumerated power. What does the necessary and proper clause really do? Well, uh, I, I've, I'm writing a bit about this, but others have written. If you look at the original history, it is a grant of implied powers only. So not only does it have to be connected to some enumerated power, but it can only be an implied power. What's an implied power? An implied power is a lesser power, a power 
that's not this great substantive independent prerogative that you would expect to be textually specified and textually enumerated if that power had been intended to be given. Okay, so for example, this is going to sound silly, but suppose, Bob, I say, you know, you can come to my office and you can pick up um, David Curry's The Constitution in Congress. It's on my bookshelf. You come to the office. You can't find it. You move books around. Do you have the implied power to move books around to look for this? Of course you do. It's a lesser power, and it's sufficiently related, you know, to this, this grant of authority I've given you. But what if my door's locked? What if my door's locked and you can't get in? Can you get a battering ram and bash my door in? to go get the book because I authorize you to go get the book for my office. No. Why? Because the power to break down the door is such a great, substantive, independent thing, independent power, that if I had authorized you to do that, you would have expected, you would have expected for me to textually enumerate that, to specify that, that you can do that. So, for example, if there hadn't been a taxing power, if there hadn't been a taxing power in the Constitution, could Congress tax people to raise money to fund the post office? I don't think so, because the power to tax is a great substantive independent prerogative. If we're giving the national government this power, we must do so explicitly. The question then becomes, is the power to conscript a great substantive independent power, something that's so important that if the national government has this power, you'd expect it to be textually enumerated, or is it a sufficiently lesser power that it can be implied and therefore Congress can do it to effectuate its power to raise and support armies and navies. That's the question. Do I have an answer to that? No. That is a hard question under the Necessary and Proper Clause, and if any of my students are listening, maybe I'll use that as an exam one day, or at least as a practice exam, because it's such a great question. Conscription um, is not a hard question for me. Of course they can't. But let's, um, I, what caught my attention, sorry to get the forced nope. the last word upon you, but um, national criminal law. Uh, okay, I'm sorry to do this. I'm going to test you. I have a thing about national criminal laws, by the way. I hate them. I hate them. Um, can you name, I'm sure you can, the original three and only three national criminal laws in the Constitution? Uh, you mean enumerated in the Constitution itself? You bet. You bet. Um, we have treason. Um, Good. Um, oh, my gosh. Let me think. Uh, <laughs> no one knows. Piracy, piracy and counterfeiting. Oh, of course, of course. It's yes. a great question. Uh, it's a, I love that question. I love the question. Sorry, I'm not mean. I'm not trying to no, humiliate you in front of your students who are who might be listening. Uh, so, students, it's not a fair question. Nobody knows except <laughs> I looked it up. Uh, national criminal law. Why you specifically mentioned that uh, as as we uh, sort of get close to running out of time. What is, why do you mention it, and what, is, what do you think the reason is for national, and when I say national criminal law, I mean leaving the police power 100% in the states where it belongs, because criminal law is simply the embodiment of police power, protecting health, welfare, and safety of citizens, a prerogative mm -hmm. of the states. Um, what's your infatuation, if it is that, with national criminal law? Sure. So, so I'll say that something about that in a moment. But we really are out of time, almost, are we? So we didn't get a chance to talk about the Hamiltonian or Madisonian views of the spending power, which you'll have to have Let's, me back because I would I'll have you back. I already have. That. I already have told Charlie to invite you back. Don't worry, you'll get plenty okay, of more because, shots at the microphone. Because we we have to talk about the Madisonian and Hamiltonian debate over that, and we had a little debate about that too. So in our in our Constitution, and I'll read it for your listeners. We give Congress specifically the power to pass criminal laws when necessary and proper for carrying out the national powers specifically enumerated in its constitution, but such laws shall be narrowly construed. Why do we do this? Because Congress has enacted a variety of criminal laws originally through the necessary and proper clause, and there was actually little dispute about that. So, for example, if you can establish a post office and a post road, can you make it a crime? to interfere with the delivery of the federal mails, to impede a um, uh, delivery of the mails. And they did. They made it a federal crime. There's no express enumerated power. The question is, is it implied under the Necessary and Proper Clause? And they said, yes, we can establish courts. Can we make bribery of federal judicial officials a, cr a federal criminal offense? Yes, they said yes, because it's necessary and proper for... Um, uh, you know, the exercise of that enumerated power. The problem in the modern day 
is Congress passes a whole host of criminal laws, not pursuant to the Necessary and Proper Clause, but pursuant to the Commerce Clause, pursuant to the Commerce Power. So, for example, my favorite, because I dealt with this issue when I was a law clerk, and it really made me angry because, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite libertarian in my tendencies, even though I was on this, you know, conservative uh, team. Uh, the Hobbes Act, okay, prohibits any robbery, even if it's intrastate, internal to a state, so long as it has an effect on interstate commerce. Well, under the test today, anything has an effect on interstate commerce, under the modern commerce test, right, in the aggregate. So there was this case where this, this individual committed a robbery of two drug dealers, all in Texas. The marijuana was probably bought in Texas. It's unclear that there's any interstate connection, but because it was two robberies, and it dealt with a market for illegal narcotics, uh, they decided that this was an uh, interstate commerce, right? So we have general criminal laws, like against robbery or bribery or extortion or what have you, under the guise, not, not specifically connected to an enumerated power, but under the guise that these activities substantially affect commerce in the aggregate. Meaning, if everybody committed robberies, when you aggregate 300 million people committing robberies, that affects interstate commerce. Well, okay, whatever, fine. That test is insane. But that's the problem with the modern-day doctrine. So in our Constitution, we try to rein it in. We try to actually say, look, those original criminal laws that were passed against interfering with the mail, against bribery of federal judicial officers, those are legitimately necessary and proper to an actual enumerated power. But using the commerce power as a general grant of power to make criminal laws, that's a really bad thing. And so what we say, again, is Congress has the power to pass criminal laws when necessary and proper for carrying out the national powers specifically enumerated, and that such laws shall be narrowly construed. We're trying to go back to the original understanding of the necessary and proper power. That's where the criminal laws can come from, but not through a general grant of power over commerce. This is Bob Zadig. I've been spending a wonderful hour that went painfully to went by so painfully fast uh, with Elon Werman. Elon is an associate professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU. He teaches admin and con law. He has written two important books. He will be back on the show to discuss perhaps two shows, each show for one of his books. The uh, He also will be back on the show. This is a public promise to discuss the wonderful a wonderful issue he has raised that has really captured my imagination dealing with the taxing power. Does Congress have the direct power to lay and collect taxes independent of the power to spend? Where do those two powers fit together? A very important conversation. We have been discussing the cons the conservative constitution and Elon, you have kind of sold me. I love your work product, and I look forward to uh, seeing the result of the uh, convention you're going to have in, in May of this year. So thank you so much for an hour of your time, Elon. It's been a wonderful hour, and I promise to have you back. In fact, I cannot wait to have you back. So thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Thank you so much for your insights, and thank you to my friends out there for sparing an hour of your time this Sunday morning. Have a nice rest of the Sunday.